The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. What are the most successful change leaders of today doing that makes them stand out? Welcome to Inside Transformational Leadership. Our program is produced by the Institute for Transformational Leadership at Georgetown University. We'll explore the inner game of transformational leadership, sharing insights from renowned leaders and faculty from our world-class leadership and coaching programs. Now, from Georgetown University, here is this week's host. Hello, this is Neil Stroll talking this afternoon uh, with uh, Jim Hollis. Um, If you have not familiar with Dr. Hollis, he is one of the greatest uh, Jungian psychologists of the current generation, in my estimation. And the title for today's segment is going to be A Life's Journey. I uh, am sitting here with a stack of books from my library with just some of uh, the titles from uh, 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 Dr. Hollis's prolific writings. Um, I have one called Swamplands of the Soul, uh, On This Journey We Call Our Life, the archetypal imagination, tracking the gods. Find, I mean, this man is prolific, and he has so much to offer us um, about insights from life and from Jungian psychology. Um, so with that in mind, uh, I'd just like to kind of dive right in. Um, so, uh, Jim, uh, you know, I might characterize your work as focusing on helping every person uh, figure out uh, their own unique path in order to build a meaningful life. Would that be a fair characterization of your work? Certainly. You know, each one of us is a kind of unique combination of um, DNA code, uh, a unique combination of time and space, a unique project. And each of us, I think, has to ask ourselves, uh, you know, why am I here really in service to what? And um, as children, we're constantly trying to read our environment and say, what's the message here? And uh, we start storying our environment, and I, I, I make a noun uh, and turn it into a verb. We story our environment, and often the stories that we derive from the world around us interfere with that natural process that wants to grow and develop within us. And after a while, often those uh, acquired stories, uh, perspectives, it begin to interfere with our natural development. And we experience internal conflict and stress, which historically was called neurosis, which is simply a question of the conflict of two stories. You know, one is an acquired story and one is a natural story that's seeking to unfold. So, you know, my work has been about trying to help people uh, discern what, what is seeking to enter the world through you. And, and what is it that your life is meant to embody? And, and how do we serve that? Because if we serve it, um, it in the end serves us. You know, there's an ancient uh, truth that was in one of the Gnostic uh, scriptures that was revealed many years ago. If you, if you serve what is wanting to be expressed through you, it will serve you. And if you run from that or violate that, it will, it will in turn violate you. You know, there's this journey we all take from childhood to adulthood. You know, Mm -hmm. one of my thoughts about the process is that when you're a child, 
you don't either have the cognitive or emotional resources to really grasp what's going on. Um, and then those stories, if you will, get kind of locked in. How would you describe the process of as you become more adult-like, you're able to return and, let's say, correct or reframe those old stories that don't serve you very well as an adult? Well, certainly. You know, if there were uh, something that, if there weren't something called psychopathology, we would never question them. In other words, if if you deconstruct the word psychopathology, psyche is the Greek word for for soul, pathos is the Greek word for suffering, and logos is the word for expression of. So, psychopathology means literally we suffer when our souls are violated. You know, and so much of modern psychology, frankly, has lost its nerve. And, and treats people only in terms of their behaviors, their cognitive processes, their, their biological processes. And, you know, if I described you in terms of your behaviors or your thought process or, or, or your, you know, your, your lab tests, you, you'd be insulted because you'd say, well, I've missed the real Neil. You know, I've missed the real person. And, and you'd be absolutely correct. It's the whole person that somehow is greater than the sum of those parts. And so that it's that person that has an autonomous center within that uh, when it when it is violated, when it is not being honored, when it's not being served by those stories and those environmental influences, pathologizes. You know, it expresses its uh, disapproval, its disfavor. And so, from a psychodynamic standpoint, we don't say, "Well, how quickly do I get rid of those symptoms?" We ask rather the question, "Why have they come?" What correctives are they asking of me? You know, what changes are necessary in my life? Why do, why do I need to sort of stop and pay attention? Maybe go back to the drawing board in my life. Yeah. See, I, there's something there that I think is, is quite nuanced and subtle, um, which is the idea that, you know, whatever it is that contributes to your suffering, um, you know, working through that and struggling with that is part of the process of how you become a, a whole person. Um, and, I'm wondering if there's, particularly because of Jungian psychology, uh, there's some things we could talk about, about the role of suffering and the role of the shadow in a person's development. Of course. You know, Jung said that, uh, uh, you know, suffering is, in a sense, uh, coming out of an inauthentic life. He, He says a neurosis is suffering that has not yet found its meaning. Now, think about that for a moment. He's not ruling out suffering. He's saying our only choice is between, you know, an honest suffering, an authentic suffering, and, and a dishonest suffering. So, for an example, uh, an addiction is a dishonest suffering. We're trying to self-medicate ourselves out of some sort of internal conflict, or where we're postponing or avoiding, as we all learn to do, of course, that which is challenging or difficult for us. We're trying to buy out of some larger summons to accountability. Uh, we, all, we all have those stuck places in our lives. We all have those places where we've learned to adapt, to adjust. And, and then the bill continues to grow inside of us. And so uh, inside, there's always something in us that is seeking accountability. There's always something that's uh, asking us to show up. There's always something that is asking us to, to be honest with ourselves. Right. And uh, frankly, the suffering has to, to uh, reach a certain magnitude before we stop and pay attention. I've, I've often said, you know, everybody has an appointment in their lives, and uh, not everybody shows up for the appointment. And okay. uh, the good news is the, uh, the psyche keeps knocking on the door and repeatedly summoning us to accountability. 
and sooner or later we we have to show up and you know sometimes it it shows up in the venue of a, a broken marriage uh, you know a loss of meaning in one's work for example or um you know a, a midlife depression or or a number of different ways in which this occurs but in those places, there's always a task, the identification of which can, can lead us from feeling sort of victimized to feeling some kind of meaningful engagement with what, um, what meaning is seeking to be uh, expressed in our lives. You know, more people suffer from the disconnect from meaning than any other single source of, of suffering in their lives. I mean, we, we know that people can have um, six-figure salaries and be profoundly unhappy in their lives. We, we know that people can have material uh, advances. They, they can have all kinds of uh, satisfactions uh, available to them in great abundance and still feel disconnected and, and still feel diseased in some way. So what's missing in a person's life is, is really what is critical. And again, there's something inside of each person that knows. There's something inside that was there in, in childhood. Call it instinct, if you will. You know, Jung said, um, all of our problems stem from one source, and that is that we're, we, we get disconnected from our instinct as a, as a guiding source. And Nietzsche called us the sick animals. And, um, you know, we're rewarded for productivity. We're rewarded for adaptability. We're rewarded for fitting in. Uh, we're rewarded for, uh, um, you know, sort of becoming anonymous in some way. And the greater, I, I, for example, I've recently had a client who worked for years in a major uh, governmental institution, and, and he said every single morning as I uh, stood in the metro waiting to get on the subway to go down to work, I knew I was trading another piece of my soul. Yeah. Well, you know, at what price? Well, what's the price for that? You know, he got a, a paycheck, a very distinguished position, and, and, and at what price? And, you know, the bill is constantly be pay, being paid. Right. You know, what's so interesting about what we're talking to is it would seem that there's a kind of dynamic here between uh, a person's um, like capacity for awareness, or they, they, uh -huh. they might be on the verge of awareness, but they're not there yet. So they're suffering silently because they can't express these, these dilemmas, these challenges um, in their soul. Um, and so there's this relationship between awareness um, and being able to articulate it, being able to express it, being able to find the right language for it. And, and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about that, the, the relationship between the suffering, the language, and the awareness. Sure, sure. Well, you know, I, I work as, as a psychoanalyst, and so my my daily work in some way is trying to help people interpret their lives you know people don't just drop in to talk to me because they were in the neighborhood and thought they would you know pop in and talk to a total stranger uh... they talk in, they talk to me because um, you know their understanding of self and world the, their roadmap as it were <coughs> excuse me is not working for some reason or there's some symptomatology that has um, begun to to be very problematic in their life and and they feel the need to address that you know everybody begins with a sense of uh, failure impotence in, in in being able to deal with something and there's a need to sort of say what's this about what what's wrong here and um, you know if i've been doing the right things why does it not feel right inside so the truth is there there are thousands of clues in other words when we're doing what's right for us we're, we're supported by our energies. When we're doing what's right for us, the feeling function, which is autonomous. In other words, we can summon energy to a thousand tasks, and thank goodness we can do that. That's what gets us out of bed on a Monday morning often. 
But when you keep doing that over time uh, against your own internal grain, that leads, of course, to depression and burnout and so forth, as we all know, various kinds of psychosomatic illnesses. Um, so the, the energy systems we have, the feeling function we have, we have um, compensatory dreams. Our dream life tells us continuously. It's a kind of ongoing commentary on how the psyche is viewing our lives. Uh, sleep research tells us that we average about six dreams per night. That's an enormous amount of activity by the uh, psyche to comment on how our lives are going. And I know most people will think, well, I don't remember my dreams, or I certainly don't mm. remember that many. And, of course, nobody does remember that many, but we, we do dream, and when people come into therapy, they, they tend to remember a lot more dreams, which means they're paying attention. So we, we begin to take seriously these commentaries that are coming from within us all the time, um, because the, the din of the outer world is so immense that how could I ever pay attention to that still, quiet voice of one's own soul that so easily is drowned out by the noise of our culture. Yeah. You know, in fact, it's, that's precisely the, the gift and curse of popular culture, is to have the steady buzz and hum of distraction. Mm. I mean, that's what popular culture offers, is distraction. So people, um, you know, don't have to reflect on the, the state of their own soul and therefore have to be accountable. Now, one of the things that I, that I take from what you were just saying is that in terms of how people are conducting their lives, um, they, they may be focused in such a way that they're answering the wrong question. Sure. And so I'm thinking that part of the process is, is how do we help them um, change the question? And in fact, you know, what I recall is that uh, in one of your early books on this journey we call our life um, was the idea of learning to live in the question. And I was wondering if you might be able to talk a little bit how you do that with the idea that a lot of the people listening are coaches rather than therapists. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering if there's some, some insights you have about how coaches uh, could help their clients live in the question. Yeah, absolutely, sure. Because in, in a sense, the, it's the quality of the questions we're living that, that provides the questions or the quality of life we, we receive. You know, when we're young, for example, our questions are tied to survival. You know, who's going to take care of me? Who's going to feed me? Who's going to change my diaper? Those are existential uh, survival questions. Uh, many times you find people still stuck in those kinds of questions later. Who's going to take care of me? And, you know, the task of what I call the first adulthood is, is, is about gathering enough ego strength to move into a provisional uh, functionality. You know, I, I am now an adult. I need to take care of myself. I learn to uh, engage in roles such as a career, relationship, etc., etc. Um, but always is the question, is, is the uh, work I'm doing, Apart from earning a paycheck, we have to pay our bills, after all. We have children, we have mortgages, etc., etc. But is the work I'm doing providing any kind of reciprocity for me? You know, I, I had a colleague who, years ago, a friend of mine, who um, was, was an HR director in a corporation in, in the Northeast, and he said, he always told new employees, he said, remember, the company does not love you. The company rents your behavior. And he said it will continue to rent your behavior as long as it's productive for the company, which is kind of like a bucket of cold water in the face of new yeah. employees. But he went on to say, therefore, 
your value here, your sense of, of, of belonging to this company will come from your fellow feeling with your colleagues at work and from your sense of satisfaction in your job. And if you don't have satisfaction in your job, you know, by all means, look for a job that will provide you a sense of satisfaction. I mean, his, his motive was really coming from uh, caring for the nature of his employees. And I, I think in, in, in that the concern he had, it was actually uh, some, you know, an ethic that, that spread within his particular company. So I, I think the real question in the long run, uh, apart from how do I solve the, the daily problem, the university pro- universal problem of how do I pay my bills, is do I have a sense of reciprocity in my work? Uh, that is to say, as I invest in it, does it come back to me in, in meaningful ways? And if it doesn't, by all means... Find a way to change that, you know? Right. Uh, yeah. We live in a country where people have the possibility of several careers, living in different places. We live in the most mobile culture in human history, uh, other than, you know, the mass migrations caused by, you know, wars and, and climate change and so forth and throughout history. And, and, and so I've always encouraged people to take on a kind of radical accountability to their own psychological well-being. You know, if you don't like your life, change it. Who do you think is responsible for it? Right. So why don't we take a break at the moment, and then when we come back, maybe we can talk about that idea of um, how work does or does not contribute to the expression of self and the discovery of meaning. But I think right now we'll take take a brief break. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CTN CIO Talk Network, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experience with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive, better care for customers, and improve the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjog All at CIO Talk Network. Founded in 2012, the Institute for Transformational Leadership, ITL, is an international center for inquiry, research, and education about the nature and requirements of leadership in the 21st century. Our mission is to develop and sustain worldwide communities of transformational leaders and leadership coaches dedicated to awakening, engaging, and supporting the leadership required in the world today to create a more sustainable and compassionate future. We currently offer three cohort-based certificate programs, the ICF Accredited Certificate in Leadership Coaching, the Executive Certificate in Transformational Leadership, and the Certificate in Facilitation. We also offer a range of ICF-certified advanced coach education courses for experienced leadership coaches. For more information about our programs and how to apply, visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. Email ITLprograms at georgetown.edu or call 202-687-7000. Are you looking to get noticed in today's business world? Listen for Chat with Chickles, what they couldn't teach you in business school. This is the show that will help you survive and thrive in business today. It's what you can do differently that will help you stand apart from everybody else in the field. 
Lisa Chickles and her guests can show you just how to gain that unique edge. Chat with Chickles can be heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Listening to Inside Transformational Leadership, produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Transformational Leadership. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please send an email to itlprograms at georgetown.edu. Here again is your host. I'm here with uh, uh, Dr. James Hollis. And Jim, you know, given what we were just talking about, it re- kind of reminds me of. Um, uh, a saying I once read in a book uh, years and years ago called Megatrends. Um, and John Nesbitt said that in corporations, we must earn something as pedestrian as our daily bread and define something as lofty as our self-esteem. Um, and that kind of sounds very much like what we were just talking about in, in the last segment, which leads me to want to explore with you uh, a basic Jungian concept, and that is the idea of individuation. And I'm wondering if you might be able to just kind of walk us through what it all means, but also um, how that idea shows up in working with people um, to support them in their development and growth. Certainly. Uh, well, individuation is one of those terms that is sort of easily um, misunderstood. It, it's often confused with individualism or even at worst, narcissism or self-absorption. Uh, in individuation, ironically, is uh, a summons to consider really what is worthy of the ego submission to uh, some sort of service. In other words, when I'm young, I, I, I have to submit myself to the will of the world around me. What do my parents want? What do the teachers want? You know, what does my employer want, et cetera, et cetera. And those are legitimate uh, sort of commitments to the demands of the environment. But as I mature and begin to sort of step into the world, I have to, you know, reclaim my own personal authority, and I have to be accountable to myself and, and to say in some way, you know, again, why am I here and in service to what? Because if I'm not asking that kind of question, I will be in service to my old stories, to my old adaptations, and, and to ask a different kind of question. Rather than what does the world want, uh, it's what wants to enter the world through me. Now, to give you a specific example, I've had many jobs in my life, but the one calling I've had essentially since childhood was, was teaching. And whether I've been an actual teacher or an analyst or a writer or a professor or whatever, um, I, when I was a child, teachers were heroes of mine because they, they helped me understand my world. They opened a larger world for me. They stretched my imagination. And it became a calling for me. And it's, um, you know, if I were interested in making more money, I would have gone in other directions. Or a number of alternative paths would have been possible. But teaching was the one thing that always felt like a calling to me. And I'm in my eighth decade now, and it still is a calling. And I've served it, and it's served me, because I have a continuing sense of a purpose and a continuing sense of fulfillment. That's why we are having this conversation again today. It's just another forum for the teaching process. In other words, individuation is about serving the possibilities of your own being. Um, it's, it, it's about saying what are the values 
that really I feel are worthy of my investment, of my, you know, and some of them will be, for example, relational, um, you know, being a parent, being a partner, being a citizen. Um, and, and some of them are in, in relationship to, to your own psychological growth and development, maybe your intellectual growth and development. But, but certainly many others are, are in, in what way am I called to, for example, face my fears? Where am I stuck in my development? Where am I blocked in my growth? Where does uh, the old story uh, keep me from stepping into my possibility? I've often asked people in, in workshops, for example, where are you stuck? And nobody has yet asked, what do you mean, stuck? They, they immediately know, and they start writing because it's a writing workshop. And invariably, it's because there's an old fear that's blocking. It says something like, well, there's a voice in me that says, well, you have no talent there, or, you know, you can't do that, or what are those archaic voices that we all carry from long ago and far away? Or, or there's a fear that, well, if you do that, you're going to be out there on your own, and nobody's going to understand you. And, and we have to understand that we walk around and carry those kinds of archaic voices inside of our heads. You know, my last book was called Hauntings, and, and we all live in haunted houses. And, and the hauntings in our houses are, are those archaic voices inside of us that say, you've got to do this, but you sure can't do that. And our individuation process is about facing those ghosts in the house. There are no outer enemies. They are, they are the ghosts of our past. They are the things that keep us from our, our natural feeling states. They are the things that keep us from our creativity, that keep us from spontaneity, that keep us from the, 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 the joyous impulses of childhood. And as, as you do that, become a, a richer person to share with the world. You know, it's not, again, about selfishness. You become a more evolved person. Right. You know, something that Jung said that, that's always haunted me as a parent in a, in a constructive way, he said the greatest burden the child must bear is the unlived life of the parent. So that tells me wherever I'm stuck and wherever I, I'm blocked in my growth and development becomes part of the ceiling that, you know, my children will be stuck at. And, and they'll maybe either will be blocked there themselves or have to spend a lot of energy trying to get unblocked. Right. So I help them by clearing the territory out in front of them. It, which reminds me of a saying that when I came across it, it, it just became a little bit of a mantra for me. It really informed my thinking. Um, and this is kind of a, a butchered paraphrase, but the idea was, uh, when you finally figure out how to forgive your parents is when you finally figure out how to become an adult. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, you said something somewhat comparable. He said, you don't really become an adult until you can see your parents as other adults. Yeah. And that means with a capacity to understand that they had their flaws, their limitations, they're not demigods. They're, they're, they're not necessarily evil, although they might have done some bad things. Um, you, you see them with a, a realistic appraisal, and you might also realize these are not people that I would associate with voluntarily at this moment in my life. The point right. is you're able to approach them with a measure of objectivity. I know there's always a subjective field of reference there, you know, but the point, yep. again, is well taken. Right. You know, the one interesting thing about, you know, a lot of the ideas in hauntings, and I think um, it's also... Um, in your book, uh, What Matters Most, which, uh, you know, I think can be almost like a Bible for a lot of people um, at, uh, at midlife. Um, but one of the things about how I interpreted um, some of your more recent writings is that, you know, 
if you're really willing to do this deep work, um, is also like your road to truly deep joy. That some of the things um, that I think are now happening uh, in the positive psychology movement, uh, not by design, but by something, uh, is the risk that uh, people are going to do their work superficially um, and will not actually have the possibility of the kind of joy, I think, uh, that you're um, creating possibilities for in some of your later writings is if you do that deep work, um, the possibilities are amazing. Is that is that a fair characterization? Well, I think so, too, yes. I mean, one reads needs to read uh, Keats's Ode on Melancholy, you know, and uh, Keats makes that point back about 1817 where he says, you know, only when you have felt the depths of sorrow and melancholy can you also have break you know the the grape of joy against the palate you know of the soul and uh, you know the, the the two go together i mean joy has to always be in the context also of its companion sorrow and loss as well and um, otherwise joy is superficial and mindless which is what our culture often purveys and right. uh, you know as i said as a culture of trivia and a culture of uh, distraction, by and large. Right. So I'm suspicious yeah. of purveyors of uh, you know good feelings for the sake of good feelings. Right. Which I would say is, if you can fund it as a lifestyle, right, like the pursuit of hedonism, um, yes, it'll be right. a certain yes. kind of yeah. it'll be a certain kind of pleasure, but I don't think it will be joy. Right. And it, it won't be, be in the long run. It won't be meaningful because it's a it's a fugitive life in a way. Yeah. 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 It, yeah. Yeah. If we could move the conversation for a moment in another direction, sure. uh, a lot of your um, later writings, it seems to me, uh, focus on the challenges of, of midlife. And it seems to me um, that there are certain things that none of us can really even intuit or grasp until we are at a particular stage of our journey through life, that mm -hmm. the younger version of ourselves cannot really intuit or grasp the challenges of midlife. Um, so, A, I'm wondering if, if you would agree with that uh, assessment. Mm -hmm. But secondly, if you would be able to talk a little bit um, from what you're learning and understanding about the unique challenges of people at midlife, if there's, if there's a conversation for the two of us to be having about, about the midlife transition. Certainly, certainly. Well, you know, I, I was... Um privileged to be able to achieve my basic life goals. I had a family, uh, a child, a doctorate. By the time I was 37, I was a professor. And, you know, it's like, where do you go after that? And I was blessed by my own psyche at age 35 to have a very nice depression, which was not part of the plan. And so for the first time, I had to go back to the drawing board. And I thought, what's this all about? Excuse me, and it, and it led me to my first hour of therapy, quite quite uh, opposed to my expectation and my will, and it led me, you know, away from academia ultimately to uh, enter the world of psychotherapy and to retrain as a psychologist, having been a professor of the humanities for my first career. And I began to realize after a while, everyone that came to me had a different life story and a different presenting situation. But one thing was in common, and that was everyone's sense of self and sense of world, one's marching orders, one's uh, sort of roadmap, as it were, for whatever reason, was no longer seemingly applicable to the um, terrain they were in. And I thought, you know, this is, this is what happens when you have a, a passage. 
you know, passage is when something has died, and you may not know it's died, but it's died. It's played out. doesn't mean it was wrong. It could have been wrong, but it may not have been wrong. It just, it, it's finished. And something else may be wanting to arrive, but you're in that in-between, and the in-between can be very painful. The in-between can be very uncertain. The in-between can last sometimes even for years. And I thought, well, you know, that's a passage, and, and part of what each of these persons with different life situations is, is needing to address is how do I hold things together while I'm in this in-betweenness, this in-between state? And I thought, well, you know, it is a kind of middle passage, because the first passage is the so-called adolescent passage, where I move into a big body and a big role, and I leave my parents' home, and I step out into the world and say, here, I'm a big person, marry me, hire me, etc., etc., um, and then the final passage, which is mortality, but the middle passage is one in which I'm beginning to sort of question, being forced to sort of question my roadmap, uh, to ask myself uh, questions I wouldn't have thought I had to ask, like, for example, who am I apart from my roadmap? Uh, who am I apart from my roles, which might be good roles or might be bad roles? Who am I apart from my history? Uh, who am I apart from my expectations? Um, and and these are not necessarily um, pleasant questions. They are they're often disconcerting questions. They cause anxiety, um, and usually they they're forced upon us because there's some kind of uh, insurgency that's been coming from below. Again, the presenting venue can be troubles in a relationship. It can be intrapsychic rebellion, such as a depression or an addiction or or something like that, or a loss of of sense of purpose or energy for something. Um, and I began to realize it wasn't tied necessarily chronologically to midlife. It didn't have to happen, have to happen at age 35 as it did for me right on schedule, but uh, often occurred between ages 30 and, and 60. Yes. And um, it's, it, it happens whenever a person, for whatever reason, is obliged to sort of pull back and say, um, you know, what's wrong with this picture? You know, sometimes it comes from downsizing. Sometimes it's when the, the, the last child goes away to college and a person realizes how much of their sense of identity has been invested in that child or when they're, they're facing aging or retirement or, or divorce occurs. Or, you know, sometimes it's precipitated by an outer change, sometimes by, by an inner change. Um, at the point being, it's whenever one is obliged to pull back and to say, now, who am I apart from this history, from these roles, from the uh, roadmap that I've been using? And, and one can feel um, a very difficult um, in-betweenness at that moment. <coughs> Excuse me. And, and in that in-betweenness, there's always something that's beginning and wishing to emerge, but it doesn't necessarily hurry. Uh, one has to be able to hold that tension uh, until the, the new appears, and it will always will appear. And that's often been the uh, role and, and, and function of, of psychotherapy. And I understand that, you know, the, primarily the people listening today are, are going to be coaches, and, and they often have to play that role of helping that person transition holding fragments together, um, you know, while in, a, a new understanding of self and work, for example, uh, emerge. Again, yep. with maybe some different understandings of who am I in relationship to this terrain. 
You know, I may keep the same job or the same position or the same relationship, but my relationship to it has changed. My understanding of it has changed. My approach to it has changed. And yes. therein has, is, is a huge alteration. Right. It's a real commas like, you know, midwifery into this next stage. But we're going to take a break right now. And for our last segment, what I'd love to be able to explore with you is some other uh, Jungian ideas and your ideas around archetypes and the role of myth in human life uh, when mm-hmm. we come back. All right. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Klass. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Founded in 2012, the Institute for Transformational Leadership, ITL, is an international center for inquiry, research, and education about the nature and requirements of leadership in the 21st century. Our mission is to develop and sustain worldwide communities of transformational leaders and leadership coaches dedicated to awakening, engaging, and supporting the leadership required in the world today to create a more sustainable and compassionate future. We currently offer three cohort-based certificate programs, the ICF Accredited Certificate in Leadership Coaching, the Executive Certificate in Transformational Leadership, and the Certificate in Facilitation. We also offer a range of ICF-certified advanced coach education courses for experienced leadership coaches. For more information about our programs and how to apply, visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. Email itlprograms at georgetown.edu or call 202-687-7000. Are you a business leader or executive that wants to achieve more? Not just in it and profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways. Listen for the Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. You'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. The Business Elevation Show can be heard live on Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, usually 4 p.m. U.K. on the Voice America Business Channel. Be more. Achieve more. You are listening to Inside Transformational Leadership, produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Transformational Leadership. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please send an email to itlprograms at georgetown.edu. Here again is your host. I'm here today with uh, Dr. Jim Hollis, and in this last segment of the program, uh, we're going to spend some time talking about some other uh, basic concepts from union psychology, and the two I'm most eager to explore are the idea of archetypes, um, and mythology. And maybe in the beginning, we'll just talk about it more broadly and uh, I'll just kind of give uh, Jim some room to maneuver. Um, and then we'll kind of drill down as the conversation unfolds. 
Um, so where should we start when we talk about the idea of archetype and mythology? Well, first of all, the, um, the word myth is uh, unfortunately uh, synonymous with falsehood in our culture. Uh, as unions use it, the word myth is a very uh, honorific word, or at least a very important word. Uh, myth has to do with the nature of the value systems that our psychological life is in service to at any given moment. And, and some of those are overt and conscious, you know, and, and, and they direct our behaviors and our values and so forth. So, for example, you'd have to say, you know, conscious mythological systems that drive our culture are today materialism, hedonism, narcissism, and so forth. And on a very personal level, um, you know, our, our individual neuroses, our, our complexes, our individual fears are part of our personal mythological system. There are vast mythological dramas that unfold every night in our, our dreams and so forth. We talked before about individuation. There's a large mythological uh, sort of drama that's wishing to unfold um, through us into history. You know, we're a unique experiment, as I was suggesting. And consciousness plays a role, and either it's going to, insist, uh, to assist or to impede the unfolding of that mythological system or not. Um, so myth is a very rich term. It's not a question of, of whether I live mythologically. It's a question of what myths I'm living and whether they are in some way consistent with, you know, the movement of my, my deeper currents, where they are consonant with uh, the impulses of my soul or, or they're in violation of them. Because many of the values of, of the family of origin or the popular culture, religion, education, etc., will, will violate our, our souls and our psychic life. And, and we experience mythic dissonance or mythic um, a conflict. And, uh, you know, we all have to find our personal myth. And, um, you know, one of the, the myths that Jung talked about in great uh, detail, and I've, I've spoken about on many occasions, is the myth of the wounded healer. Most of us in this profession are devoted to the healing process. Now, why is that the case? Why are we not long-distance truck drivers? You know, why are we not country and western singers? Um, and few people have actually stopped to think about that. And often the roots of that, you know, lay within our own family of origins. And that's neither good nor bad, but it's important for us to begin to sort of think about what are the component pieces of my personal myth that's led me to this kind of work? Why, why is it um, you know, so compelling in my life? And it can be a source of great meaning to me and purpose. You know, as Jung said, behind the wound often lies the genius of the person. But it can also lead to burnout, to distress, uh, to um, you know, binding a person to wounds of the past in ways that are destructive to him or her. So that, that's a very important sort of mythological self-analysis that uh, very few people ever engage in who are, who are in the helping professions. And that applies to social work, uh, to uh, you know, coaching, to clergy, uh, to nurses, etc. Um, yeah, what, what I take from that is that as long as that myth operates, let's say, implicitly or unconsciously, yes. it's going to rob us of choice. Absolutely. Anything that's going on, on in con- unconsciousness, by definition, is, is unconscious. I mean, that's the problem with the unconscious is it's unconscious, so we don't know what's happening. There is no choice. So um, I'm a prisoner. You know, as, as Shakespeare wrote, you know, we, you know no, no prisons are more confining than those we know not we're in. Huh. You see? Love it. Yep. Now, an archetype um, is simply a, a, an organizing pattern 
in our lives. You know, our life itself probably has no meaning. It's it's just, you know, atoms assembling and disassembling, and uh, life is just rolling chaos. But this particular animal called the human being is a meaning-seeking, meaning-creating animal. We are a mythological creature, and and we are the animal that um, organizes. You know, we create time. We create uh, experiences of space. We, we, we impose upon that chaos patterns, and that patterning process is, is what is meant by the archetype. It's something, it's nothing occult. It's something instinctual. It organizes. And it helps us stand in relationship to the raw chaos of nature. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. You know, it would seem to me, and I and I don't know because you know in in the books of yours that I've read, you you haven't um, specifically or explicitly ad- addressed the idea of leadership. Um, so where we're going in the conversation now might be um, very speculative, but it would mm-hmm. seem to me that there would be some kind of relationship or dynamic between what's going on in our archetypes and how people might choose or not choose to become more leader-like. Um, I, I don't know if that, that's a, a fair way of characterizing it, but I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about either the, the relationship between archetypes and, and leadership or just leadership in general. Well, certainly. Um, first of all, you laid out a challenge for therapists, which I'm sure applies to anybody in a leadership position. And he said, you can't take a person any farther than you've traveled yourself. Mm-hmm. Now, on the one hand, that is so obvious and so self-evident. On the other hand, what a challenge that is. Wherever I'm stuck, wherever I'm blocked, guess what? It's going to show up in my intimate relationships. It's going to show up in my work with clients. It's going to show up in my children. And the same is true whenever I'm working with people, you know. And so any leader is going to be stuck in his or her narcissistic needs or going to be need, uh, stuck in, in his or her need for approval from others. Or um, wh- wherever there's an unexamined complex, and again, the word complex is a neutral word. We all have them because a complex is simply a charged cluster of our history. Some of them work positively in our lives. Others work in, in pernicious ways in our lives. But, you know, every, every, every leader is a human being first, and he or she brings their whole package of humanity to work every day, as do uh, everyone else. Uh, year, years ago, I was asked to speak to a, um, a, a network in the Delaware Valley on on uh, this subject, and I remember, and I sort of said yes before I thought prudently about it, and I thought, you know, I don't have anything to say to these folks, because that's not my field of, of uh, enterprise, and so I went in and, and talked about thinking about, you know, dealing with a business in the same way you do with an individual, and I talked about the nature of complexes and, 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 and projection and transference and the usual psychological phenomenon that we have in the one-on-one relationships. And then just think how every organization is the individual writ large, as it were. And so you have emotional needs for affirmation. You have sibling rivalries. You have jealousies. Um, you have the need for parental approval. You have, um, you have angers toward parents. All of that traffic is, is brought to work every single day 
Why would it not be? We, we don't always just leave that at home. And yes, everybody has filters, and they can often filter out a good part of that material, but it's always present. And of course, the more you rub shoulders in the work environment, the more it's going to show up. And I think most, most of the people in coaching would say that the biggest problem they, they run into is interpersonal conflict and or people's personal complexes that get in the way and, and start interfering with how, you know, what their good judgments might be. So again, the, the, <laughs> it all comes back home is what, what do I need to know and understand about myself? What do I need to face within my own fears? And if I can face my own fears, my own shadow. Now, you, you mentioned the word shadow a while ago. Yep. Um, Jung's concept of shadow is very rich and profound. The, the shadow is not synonymous with evil, though sometimes evil can come from it. The shadow in its most generic form was his understanding of those parts of myself or those parts of my groups or organizations that when brought to consciousness, I find troubling about myself or contradictory to my intentions or my values. In other words, none of us want to think about ourselves as egotistical. None of us want to think about ourselves as vain. None of us want to think about ourselves as jealous or, or, or overly ambitious. And yet, since when are we exempt from the human condition, you know? Yep. The wisest thing ever said about humanity came from the Latin playwright um, Terence 21 centuries ago who said, nothing human is alien to me. So each of us carries the whole human project. So if I can manage to examine the vain part of me, the jealous part of me, the egotistical part of me, the needy part of me, and own it, then, then maybe I have a chance of lifting that off of you, you know, my colleague at work, my employee, um, whatever. Um, and, and maybe that cleans up a little bit of the atmosphere between us. Because Jung said the best thing we can do for our society is try to clean up our own backyard. And that sounds like it's, um, you know, small potatoes. But, you know, if more of us could do that, it, it, it goes a long way towards uh, improving the society in which we find ourselves living. So uh, any work environment is, is really the, the receptacle, you know, for family of origin dynamics, the psychology of the individual brought into the mix, and he said the larger the group, the lower the level of consciousness, which yeah. is a scary thought. Right. And, and all we have to do is think about our current election and, and think about, you know, the mass forces unleashed in our current election and to sort of shudder at the thought of the amount of shadow material that's being projected on one group or another and mm. the hatred and the bigotry and the wild passions that have been unleashed and, and to realize how much shadow material is out there. Would you have any thoughts, you know, he, as coaches, the vast majority of coaches um, don't have uh, a, a deep, let's say, clinical or like like background, right? I mean, you used some words earlier about, you know, transference and psychopathology. Yeah. That's that's really not the, the backyard where the vast majority of leadership coaches sure. will play. And yet, in our work and in our conversations with our clients, we are going to bump into this material. Yes. Um, because a lot of times, particularly with people who are in our leadership below, they have like a vulnerability uh, to their shadow side. So they make um, regrettable decisions that kind of blow up. And then um, all, their, all the regret and remorse is all after the fact. 
Um, and I'm curious if you would have any thoughts about how people um, without a clinical background might be able to engage people in leadership roles about how to grapple with their shadow. Just if you have any thoughts about that whole idea. Well, my next sentences are going to sound awfully self-serving, and I apologize for that. That's what my books have been about, frankly. They've been efforts to try to communicate to people these basic concepts without having them in therapy. I mean, I think the best way to do this is to have your own serious, sustained therapy so you understand this yourself, because how can you communicate to other people what you haven't gone through yourself? That's what Jung's point was. Now, second to that would be at least an introduction to it through those books. And again, I'm not promoting my books. Honestly, I'm not. I'm just saying that that's what I've understood those books to be as de facto uh, classrooms. Because, you know, the concept of complexes, of course, um, you know, bosses have complexes. They have emotional needs. Um, Employees have emotional needs. Is it any wonder that any work environment is not a minefield strewn with mines that people step on all the time and wonder why why somebody gets injured? And it's very hard to, to sort of repair the damage after the fact because people are standing there bleeding from shrapnel. Yeah. And and underneath all of that is, is there a capacity for self-examination? Now, I've had several clients through the years who've had, um, who, who've been business consultants, you know, and, and they said their toughest client is the executive who refuses self-examination. Right. And then you're really stuck because if you don't have that, you know, you're really blocked. Um, right. And, and because, you know, it, it all begins with, again, personal accountability. If I can't examine myself, then it's always going to be someone else's problem. Yeah. And, and, and when you see the culture of blaming and scapegoating, you're, you're talking about a person who is so insecure, so weak inside, that he or she cannot tolerate any genuine self-examination. Right. You know, the true well, narcissist and heavens knows we have enough of them in our world, um, looks in the mirror and no one stares back. I mean, their, their, their pathology is they have a tremendously inadequate sense of self, which is why they always have to engage in, in power exercises over others. Wow. Because they have very little sense of self-worth. You see, that's the terrible secret. So if wow, that's parent, a massive insight. Yeah, I mean, if it's, if it's a parent yeah. or, you know, they rule the children... If it's an employer, you know, the employee does the work and they take the credit. Yep. And, you know, it's, it's very hard to deal with that because yep. there's an insufficient capacity for self-examination. And that's a wow. pretty intractable situation. I'd look for another position if possible, you know. Right. And I think that's why, um, as coaches, to some degree, I think perhaps we're doing God's work when we work with these executives and help them uh, excavate this. Well, we've come to the end of our hour, and um, I'd like to thank Dr. Hollis. This has been a spectacular conversation. I could keep talking about it. Um, his books are, uh, are amazing. Um, for me, um, I'm more enthralled, to be honest, in with your later books than your earlier books. I, I just loved Hauntings and Finding Meaning in the Second Half of Life. Um, and for those of you who are, who are here in D.C., uh, that's where Dr. Hollis's practice is, and there's a uh, Jungian Society of D.C. where he's the executive director. I just want to thank you again, Jim, for taking the time today. This has been a, a spectacular interview, and uh, I think we're good to sign off.
My privilege, Neil. Thanks to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week on Inside Transformational Leadership. Please tune in for another edition next Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our programs, please visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. We'll talk again next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.